Hello, welcome to Deep Into Sleep podcast. I'm Dr. Yishan, a licensed clinical psychologist, board-certified behavioral sleep medicine specialist, and adjunct clinical faculty at Stanford School of Medicine. So, do you use white noise to help yourself fall asleep, or do you use white noise to help your babies to sleep? Are you aware when babies sleep with white noises on? It may actually impact baby's brain development, especially their language development. I was shocked when I heard about this. And today, our guest, Dr. April Benesish, a neuroscientist, will share with us the inside and out of this topic. She is a professor of developmental cognitive neuroscience, director of the Infancy Studies Lab at the Center for. Molecular and Behavioral Neuroscience, and director of the Carter Center for Neurocognitive Research, and professor of neuroscience at Rutgers University. Dr. Benesish was the first to link early deficits in rapid auditory processing to later impairments in language and cognition. She is also one of the founders of Rapt Ventures Inc. She is very passionate with helping babies optimize their sleep and brain health, providing parents an alternative option to white noise and a smarter way to sleep. I learned a lot from this conversation and hope it would inspire you as well. Let's welcome Dr. Benesish. Hello, welcome to Deep Into Sleep podcast.、Uh, hi, Dr. Benesish. Very nice to have you today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to talk to you and to your、um, audience about baby sleep, baby early development, and what's happening in the baby's brain while they're sleeping. Great. Yes. So, what exactly is happening when babies are asleep? Right. So, what is happening to their brain, and how important is sleep to babies?、Um, you know, cognitive development. Of course, sleep is very important. It's important for the baby, and it's important for the parents too, because that's sometimes an issue when the baby's not sleeping. But in the first year of life, the infant brain is especially receptive. To acoustic cues, so these are tiny changes in sound in the tens of milliseconds. I often like to think about it as transitions, like hearing the difference between a B and a P, for instance. That's about thirty milliseconds. A millisecond is a thousandth of a second. So the brain is listening for those to help create the neural connections to process the sounds in the environment. These prelinguistic sounds that babies are listening for and saying their brains are so focused and to attend to these kinds of sounds. Because those are the sounds that are going to signal to them that this might be language. Let's listen to it, because that's what they need to do, right? And so gradually, they collect information about that. And during sleep, what happens? Your baby's sleeping, hooray! And they're 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 sleeping nicely. They're going through all the sleep cycles, but there are parts of the baby's brain, and I'm talking about. Babies and children and adults too. There are parts of the baby's brain that are not sleeping, 
And the parts of the brain that are not sleeping are paying attention also to the environment and using that information to bootstrap the information that they gather during the day. Because during sleep is when those networks get set up. They get arranged, they get um, refined and tuned. That's called experience expectant plasticity. That is, the brain is using information that it has, that it's collected during the day. And it's also using information from the environment to induce plasticity, that is change networks and make these maps, these brain maps that are going to support incoming language, which is just awesome when you think about what the brain is doing. Wow. I think you mentioned something really important is when we are asleep, no matter as babies or adults, always part of brain is asleep. Part of brain is awake, right? So the brain actually always keeps some kind of active stage, um, even when we are asleep. So, but for babies, I think their neurons are still growing, connecting. There's lots happening. They're really trying to understand the, the world. And uh, so sounds like sleep stage is a quite important uh, active and possibly like important to learning such a period of time. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And gradually what happens in the beginning, you know, they're not really paying attention to the words yet. They're just paying attention to these little sounds. And as kids grow and develop, then they're paying attention to the words and to the other other sounds in the environment. Mostly they're listening to these basic acoustic cues, these little sounds that activate those networks that are setting up language and figuring out what their native language is because they don't know, you know, they're born. They're like, hey, where am I? Am I in England? I'm in the U.S. I'm in China. I'm in Japan. I have to listen to the sounds that are surrounding me because I need to send set up networks that will uh, process my native language. They don't know what the native language is, but they figure it out. The really important thing, though, is that I've been concerned because I, I was surprised to find out that so many parents were using white noise machines because that wasn't a thing when my girls were little. I think there's a very ubiquitous response in general, even by pediatricians and other people, other organizations that should be supporting that sort of information for parents, that there's no issue with using white noise. And in fact, it... Um, can really help with uh, sleep with babies, help them to go to sleep, you know, using it as a sleep cue in your sleep routine, which is something parents need to do to get babies to sleep. There's a lack of information about white noise. White noise is a sound that is all frequencies, all at the same intensity. So it's like, it's like static, right? And people talk about, Pink noise and brown noise, the only difference is pink noise is higher frequencies, all at the same intensity. Brown noise is uh, lower frequencies, all at the same intensity. So, so why was I concerned about this? Well, there's a reasonably large body of literature, both in baby animals and in human babies, showing that 
large dosages of white noise actually mask these environmental cues that babies need to listen to. So infants who are in like preterms, who are in neonatal intensive care units, um, can have issues. They can have a very loud volume of noise. And we all know that you don't want anything over 75 to 85 decibels. You don't want it to be too loud because that indeed is something that everyone's concerned about. But what's also something to think about is that you want the brain during sleep in your baby to be doing what it needs to be doing at night when they're sleeping. White noise masks that environmental input. So it kind of shuts the brain down and says, you know, there's nothing here to listen to. But the baby's brain um, expects, remember I talked, uh, it's like experience expected. That is the baby's expecting to have this input from the environment. Plasticity, changing and refining the networks that they're making. And so white noise interferes with that. There are lots of things that a parent can do. Um, of course, not every child is going to have an issue with listening to white noise, but there's definite risk there. It's helpful for parents to be able to have the information to make a decision about whether what they're going to use for their baby's sleep. And of course, there's lots of alternatives. You can use um, music, you can use nature sounds, you can use womb sounds. Um, all of those are very supportive of what's going on. Or if you don't need a soother, you don't need to use a soother. But lots of parents want to mask noise. Yeah, let me understand it um, correctly first. So sounds like even when babies are asleep, their brains are taking these sound cues from the environment, which could be a good thing to, to the development of the brain. But what type of sounds possibly do matter? especially to babies, right? Because white noise, i actually not familiar with how, how many babies, how many parents are using white noise uh, right now, but I know a lot of adults, they use white noise as a way to avoid thinking about other things, right? To block off other environmental sounds. So it's self-soothing too, to help fall asleep. But sounds like for babies, we have to be careful. We don't want it become a a tool of avoidance that, that could block the real important and helpful environmental sound cue to the baby brain development. Is that right? That's exactly right. And I think that parents don't know. I mean, they don't hear this information. So we've really been making an effort to get this out, this information out. And in fact, I'm a, a co-founder and chief um, scientist at uh, Rap Ventures, Inc. And it's subsidiary, it's children's division, Wrapped Baby. Um, and we made a sound soother for this very reason, because we were alarmed about the um, number of parents who were using white noise, unknowing that it could be not great for their for their baby's brain. And, and that's particularly true for babies who might be at risk. I just mentioned preterms. Those those babies need a clear, supportive environment of sound, both while they're awake and while they're asleep. Preterms have three times the uh, incidence of language learning impairments than children that are born at term. They're already sensitive to having issues. 
And it's true also for families that might have a child who has a language learning disorder like delayed speech or dyslexia or ADHD or um, some subtypes of autism where, where there is a, a genetic, higher genetic risk of having language disorders. I don't think parents need to think, oh my God, I did this and this is a bad thing. I mean, yeah, the thing is that we've always done things and then we learn there's a better way or there's something that's better. I'm hoping that parents will understand that this is better for their baby's brains to have um, variation in their acoustic input while they're sleeping. And there are lots of ways to do that. Um, and so I'd like to get that message out. I mean, when I was growing up, I know my mom smoked cigarettes and drank. I mean, I turned out okay, I think. But now we know that that's not something we want pregnant women to do. So when we learn more about um, what's happening in the neuroscience literature, it makes sense to pay attention to that and and try to incorporate those important ideas into what we recommend for parents. Wow, this is so important. And I'm surprised, even though I'm in this field of clinical psychology, I work with a lot of children and parents, actually not familiar with the literature on this specific topic. I don't know, there's a difference of how sound may impact children. And think about the product you help co-founded, um, sounds like it could be potentially an intervention too, to really help children to, you know, still get the soothing effect from certain sounds at the same time, make sure the sounds they are listening to while they, they are asleep, that can really help them and benefit them, uh, especially their cognitive development, right? At the same time, that's so important. No, I, that's exactly right. That's true. I wouldn't call it an intervention just yet because I haven't done a longitudinal study that looked at whether this actually makes things a lot better or whether it just restores it to what the baby needs. I mean, the baby's brain knows what it needs. It's it's just an amazing, when you study the infant brain, it just amazes you all the things that it can do. It does something called statistical analysis, which I'm sure you know about. So the baby brain, even at two and three months of age, when they're listening to input, you know, when sound is coming in, there's not little markers there that say, this is the beginning of the word, this is the end of the word, this is the language that it is. But the baby's brain does what's called a statistical analysis, and it figures out the probability of what would be a beginning or an end of a word. And that's how they begin to segment sound as it comes in. And these acoustic maps that they're being set up that are being set over the first year and that are refined up until five or six years of age are changing depending on the input that they have. Um, and it always amazes me. I mean, your brain can still do statistical analysis, but you don't do a lot of it because you don't need it so much because your brain is doing automatic processing. So once you figure out the sounds in your language that you need to know, or, or more than one language, bilingual or trilingual, your brain sets up acoustic maps, little networks of, of neurons, of brain cells that respond to each sound in that language. 
And so once they get tuned like that, then when a sound comes in and you're nine or 10 or 11 or 12, you don't have to say, oh, was that ba or ta or was that, what sound was that? Your brain just automatically classifies it and that network analyzes it. But babies have to build those and we want to put them in the best environment to build those maps. And so that's kind of what this is all about at the root of it all. Using white noise, I mean, if you just use it once in a while, you know, just to get the baby to sleep and then you turn it off, it's probably fine. But much of the support for white noise has been as much as you can and as long as you can. So there, there are a number of pediatricians out there that recommend using white noise that's loud enough to cover your baby's crying and then lowering it as they, and that's very loud and, and keeping it on all night. And that definitely is making these processes that are really important to the infant brain pause. And yeah, so maybe it doesn't matter if you take a little bit longer to set these maps up than they would normally. Um, and maybe it's not going to have an outcome. As I say, the, the, the long-term studies haven't been done, although short-term studies have, but you know, in early development, there's a um, succession of things that have to happen in order. The trajectory of how different things in the brain are set up. For my child, I wouldn't want to push those things further ahead and make the brain pause before it does that because, you know, it doesn't seem ideal. Unfortunately, although there are some very nice studies there are a couple of meta-analyses looking at white noise. And those have concluded that there actually isn't a significant difference in the amount or the onset of sleep for white noise. So it's really not statistically the case that that helps. But it does help. And of course, you talk to parents about baby sleeping. In their sleep routine, if they get, if that's a cue for them, they hear white noise and they're like, okay, it's time to go to sleep. Yeah, that helps. But there are other things that you can use for an acoustic cue that don't have this um, risk. And so we're kind of sticking our necks out there and saying, we want people to really think about what they're doing and to pay attention to the research in the literature. And you know what? I will send you a white paper that summarizes most of that research. And I will also send you a paper from my lab. And this is a different paradigm. These are awake babies who got experience with passive sounds um, once a week for six weeks for about 20 minutes. And when they were four to six months of age, those sounds seem to support their acoustic processing really well. And when they got to be 12 and 18 months of age, their attention was better. Their response to language sounds was faster. And their language was better than a control group that hadn't had that input. It's a cerebral cortex paper that came out of a, a couple of months ago. So I'll be glad to send that to you. So there's real research that supports these ideas. So that's my hope that we can just get the message out that there's something better. It's time for parents to really look at the information out there that tells them 
what the baby's brain is really doing at this point in time. And of course, we want babies to sleep. So so the Smarter Sleep Sleep Soother, actually it's called the Smarter Sleep Sound Machine. Gotta get it right, right. So from Wrapped Baby, we actually worked with the composer to make these tracks. And there's like two classical, two lullabies, two nature sounds, and two womb sounds. And we worked with a composer to make these very complex, varying, but really soothing tracks. And we tested it in the lab to see if those tracks engaged, synchronized with alpha waves, which kind of make you sleepy, and delta waves, which keep you asleep. So the tracks alone are very soothing, and they induce sleep. Just like even in adults, right? So, but then what we did was we mixed some acoustic cues, some little sounds, and they're different for every track because we wanted it to blend in and not to perturb the sleep so that they're very soothing. And we did little sounds that are acoustic cues that are anywhere from 30 to 60 milliseconds long. And you can sort of hear them if you listen carefully. Lots of people, when they get one of our our machines, instead of using it to sleep, they listen to the tracks and try to figure out if they can hear the acoustic cues. So it makes me laugh. But babies can hear them because the baby's brain is much more sensitive to them. But adults can hear them too. And we actually tested it in sleeping babies. And we also tested it in awake adults. And what you see... And this will be in the white paper. I will let you read if you'd like. You can see that um, if you give the brain music alone, it responds in a particular way. You get areas of the brain that light up. And in sleeping babies, it doesn't interrupt the rhythm of sleep, but you see brain areas come online a little bit more strongly. When you add these acoustic cues, then you see a much wider engagement of the brain. So language areas light up and some other areas of the brain like parts of the prefrontal cortex, where all your executive function and everything is located, come online. So there's a difference when you add these cues. So that's a little bit of a bump, and it supports what the baby's doing anyway. I mean, babies have been doing this for centuries. Their brains kind of know what they need to do to get to where they need to be. Some kids have problems, but most babies boom, they just do a really great job of setting up language. They take what they need from the environment. I'm not sure how long this white noise craze has been around, but I think it's at least five or six years that it's been very, very intense. For the sounding machine you talk about, um, it it sounds very unique and uh, a lot of science behind it, what can sound would be really helpful to babies. So I'm curious, uh, the way to use it is that similar to white noise machine that in a way before sleep you you start listening to this you have this cue okay when this sound on our brain has associations as bedtime or right. is this machine supposed to be left on throughout the night or for most part of the night while baby is in the middle of sleep they still somehow have the sound in their uh, environment all night long. Will that in a way impact their sleep because there's a kind of like song outside when we are asleep? That's a really good question. And lots of parents ask that, right? Oh. <laughs> yeah. 
Like, will it disturb their sleep? Well, it doesn't because it's giving them the information that they need. But it's set up so you can, there's a timer. So you can do it for 30 minutes or 60 minutes or 90 minutes. So you can do it all night. Won't hurt the baby if it's all night. But if you turn it off, if it goes off, then you have the environmental sounds that are there in the environment. And that's good for the baby too. So I think parents can decide what it is that works the best. You know, it's part of the sleep routine. Like some parents just use it until the baby drifts into sleep because they're worried about the baby's waking up and being able to self-soothe. I think it depends on your baby. Babies are different too. Some babies are like very easy to put to sleep and then they wake up during the night and fuss. And it depends on how old they are. You know, when they're little, 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 you're picking them up anyway. So I think it's up to the parent, but there's no issue like a lot of people who are proponents of using white noise suggest that it be used all night. And I'm saying as a neuroscientist who knows what the brain is doing at that point in time, that is just not a good idea. That's not a good idea. And and some people out in the sort of Instagram, TikTok world say things like, um, well, there's no hard data that shows it harms the baby's brain, right? That white noise harms the baby's brain. So I just I just don't think that's a good response. It's um, the absence of direct evidence that white noise doesn't hurt babies. It's not the same as saying there's no evidence that it can. And so I think it's when people are giving advice to parents, they have to be aware of that. The reason there's not a longitudinal study looking at babies who've had white noise versus babies who haven't and the outcomes, you really need to do a longitudinal study, which is what I do in my lab, to look at that. That's tricky though. So are you gonna, there, you know, when you're doing a study, there are very strong ethical reasons for why we don't have direct longitudinal studies of white noise on baby brains. So I'm going to have parents, ask parents to sign um, a consent form acknowledging that their children will, will be exposed to hours of white noise to see if it delays their language development. What parent would sign that? I wouldn't. However, it's possible to do retrospective studies, and those are things that should be done and should be funded. That's something that I hope is going to be done, and I hope I can get funding to do. To do. Yeah, that would be great if you can get the funding, because I think that can really, you know, fill the gap of our knowledge and have more clear guidance. And when you talk about TikTok and Instagram, all the social media influencers, there are quite several papers out recently just talk about how inaccurate those information could be from those online influencers. That's very concerning in all kinds of like areas. And those people give out advice without, you know, uh, deep knowledge, no caution, and people just follow and listen. They trust them. And that's well, concerning. I think it's because parents want and need information. And they're not always sophisticated enough to understand that a particular influencer or whatever we're going to call them may not have the background or have actually read the research um, or, you know, done a deep dive and actually like, you know, if you have a graduate student do a a literature review, you expect them to do a good job and read 
the pertinent papers and understand what they mean. And that's very uncommon in, in social media. One, one of the reasons I was very excited to talk to you is because I know you have a really good background and you understand science in a way that well-meaning people on the internet who are giving advice to parents um, just don't. They just don't. And I know that nobody out there wants to give bad information to parents. But um, I think it has gotten to be a little bit of the Wild West out there, and it, it concerns me. Yeah, yeah. So we definitely need more research and need this kind of, uh, like, what he, your voice out there, right, to help us understand, oh, this is an area we, we never really thought about, but there are research behind it, and the, this is something we should start thinking about, at least for now, to take it into consideration. And uh, uh, one one more question you, you just mentioned a little bit, like no matter it's white noise machine or the machine uh, you have developed, it's like, I know a lot of parents do worry and uh, sleep experts do worry about this too. If we use a certain type of sound to help the babies fall asleep and then stop it, right? When they wake up in the middle of the night, will they, because the environment change, when they fall asleep versus when they wake up in the middle of the night, it's different. And then will that make the baby really react very negatively? And eventually, you know, the whole family suffer to how to soothe the child, the, the baby back to sleep. <laughs> um, yes, and it depends on the age of the baby. If you're getting the baby up frequently anyway. Now, I'm not a sleep routine expert. I mean, I'm a neuroscientist. I know what's going on in the brain. And I, and we do sleep studies. We look at what happens across development and what the sleep spindles are doing across time. I mean, just I'm sure stuff you'd be really fascinated to hear about. But I think that figuring out a sleep routine is very individual. And some babies will wake and you feed them and they go back to sleep. And the decision about whether to use a sleep cue every time they get up or every time they take a nap, I think it just has to be trial and error for parents to figure out. And even when you have a, like a second baby, at least in my case, sometimes they're very different from the first right. baby. My first daughter, she would just she slept seven hours the first night I brought her home from the hospital, and I was checking to make sure she was breathing. Um, but my second one woke up every couple of hours and cried and wanted you know wanted to be nursed. So. Um, I didn't use a soother when my girls were little. It wasn't a thing that people tended to do, but it might, may have helped. And I wasn't in a noisy environment. Like people that are in a city, they might want to mask background noise. If they want to do that, they should leave the soother on all night. And of course, if they have a soother that plays white noise, they don't have to buy another soother, right? They can just use one of the other tracks that are on. I mean, almost all of these Soothers have more than one track. They could just use a nature track, or although they're not as good as ours, of course, but still, that's fine. I just wanted people to think twice about using white noise. And if they're using it, I mean, it's not the end of the world, but there's something better. We know more about what the brain is doing. And so let's use that information. And parents can either just stop using it or they can use another soother at the same time so they can wean them off the white noise or they can just abruptly switch. So they might have one night when the baby's a little fussy and then they go to sleep. 
But I've had parents do all of these things and they all seem to work. Lots of parents either co-sleep or they have the baby in their bedroom. And the other thing that's really interesting is that, you know, as you begin to age, as adults begin to age, which starts like at 35 or something like that. Sorry about that. But those brain maps that we talked about that are automatic become not as well tuned because you're doing things automatically and you're not paying attention to those lower level basic processes that are the non-linguistic sounds that your brain is using to make those judgments. And so one of the things that we're really interested in is can we help to retune those maps while adults are sleeping? Not my particular area, but something I'm very interested in because I know if you look at hearing loss, issues with hearing loss in in older populations, part of it is that the hair cells in the ear, some of those die off. And so you're losing particularly the higher frequencies. You can't get those back. Not yet. I mean, they're doing research, but you can't get those back. But the other part of it is this auditory processing that's taking those sounds and deciding which network's going going to process those. And it's even though plasticity takes longer in adults, there's still plasticity there. It just takes more input. My thinking is, and um, I've submitted a grant to look at this, but it hasn't got you know it's being it's being evaluated. Um, that we could also tune those adult hearing maps, acoustic maps while they're sleeping, if they play it every night for a long period of time, you know, for a couple of months. Um, Because some of the parents are telling us, first of all, they like the womb sounds themselves. We have two womb sounds, one with a large, with a higher, um, like a, a louder heartbeat. And the other one is a little bit more sophisticated. We could actually send you one so you could listen to them. Oh. Um, and would you like that? Yeah, what I'm curious. <laughs> that exposure may be able to retune this, the other part of the hearing equation so that that brain can get a little bit better at doing that. So we're really interested in that as well. Because people say they find the tracks very soothing as adults. Um, in fact, one of our um, founders team, we listened to all the tracks so we could make sure they were really soothing. And he was, he had it on while he was working, he was sitting on a stool and, um, I don't know what track he was looking at. And he got so relaxed, he fell off his stool. So that was before we put the, we put the events in. So, so it actually, it actually works. That would be so cool. That That's something I possibly should uh, let my uh, insomnia patients consider because, you know, soothing for um, people with insomnia actually is quite difficult. It's hard for them to relax their brain, their nerve system, their body, right? Even though it's uh, beyond the topic, we talk about the children's development. Um, But still, um, you know, nowadays the society is so stressed out and so fast paced. Everyone, um, you know, suffer in a way. Um, but when you mention all this, I really think sounds like this is about how to consider the in, the influence of sounds in our life. It's it's really about uh, optimizing it, how to optimizing it to make it promote our sleep better, and how to individualize it. 
and uh, right it's everyone so different every baby is so different so how to find the best for your baby or for yourself and this needs a lot I, i'm happy there's a lot of research and you are doing all this great work and but this is for every single individual to think about that's exactly that's that's exactly right i think an optimal sound environment um, supports the brain in many ways um, it's very, very important early in development when baby, I mean, that's their big job, right? Setting up language. They're doing that. They're doing other things too, but that's a really important part of it. And also, I think the sound environment for older children and adults is also really important. You want to optimize it so it's supportive of what the brain is doing, but it's also not overwhelming. Like there's a number of studies that show that infants and toddlers who are in very noisy settings, for example, where the TV is on loud and everybody's talking, but it's not child directed speech. Those children frequently have language delays because their brain is not able to pick out the pertinent information that's in that environment because it's just a rush of sound. Now that's not white noise. White noise has no variation and no cues, but also too many cues can be confusing and difficult too, as children are setting up language. And that was when we donated some smarter sleep sound machines to UPMC medical center to the neonatal intensive care unit, because they had just uh, a number of years ago, revised their NICU so that it's not one big room with all the babies in it because it was the environment was very noisy. There was this background hum and lots of loud noises, which the babies weren't able to relax. And I mean, because these are teeny tiny preterms. So they ended up making what is the new thing to do in NICUs is all private rooms. And what they found out was all that noise was bad, but also not having very much in, input in the quiet rooms was also an issue. So you need the right amount of input. So that a lot of the parents in this NICU were low um, socioeconomic status and all working jobs. And so the parents weren't there quite as much as some other parents might be. So these babies, even though people were talking to them when they came out, came in and gave care and that sort of thing, were not getting enough stimulation. You know, we're talking about working out individual differences, but also working out an optimal sound environment to help the, the brain do what it needs to do and what it's doing. So it can't be too quiet and it can't be too loud. Wow, that's important to know, right? How to balance it out. And that reminds me, when I was a child, I grew up in China. And of course, we try to learn English. <laughs> I I heard so so many news. Oh, you should listen to some English sound all night long during sleep that can help your language development. I actually did that, but I was not sure it really helped me or actually interrupt my sleep. Um, I did not really feel like I benefit from it. Just remember, sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night, right? So I am guessing that's possibly an example of too much input somehow. That's exactly right. There's been, I don't know, a lot of studies looking at whether you can learn language while you're sleeping and you you really can't. But see, that's a different type of information. When you're giving information that are little cues that are just sounds that modulate the brain, and they've done the study in adults as well as in 
children, they have shown if you're listening during sleep to sounds that are more like the kind of acoustic cues that we have, this is not my research. I mean, there's a lot of research of other uh, scientists that went into our ideas about how to do this. But it turns out that you can see the brain responding to those sounds and changing some of the networks. So if you had been listening to like phonemes, like English phonemes as compared to, to ones that don't occur in Chinese, Mandarin or whatever, whichever language uh, you learned, you would have seen probably some improvement. But to actually learn language, you have to be awake and interacting and your brain has to be interpreting those whole words. So yeah, that that's there's been a lot of research looking at that, not mine, but others people. So so that didn't work. Right, right, exactly. I, I learned so after several nights of try, I did not try anymore. But sounds like that's a balance between passive input of information versus actively brain processing the information, right? Exactly, exactly. And and one of the things that's really interesting is I mentioned in that cerebral cortex paper. When I actually did the experiment that this um, paper refers to, we were thinking that the input had to be active because there's a lot of research that shows that if you want people to alter the sounds that they're paying attention to, the sounds that are part of language, you need to do it when they're awake and you need to do it face to face. Um, So we we did an experiment where we had an active condition and we had a passive condition and we had one where they, they were there was no input. And we were surprised. I mean, of course, active for learning these sorts of things was better, but passive actually worked really well, much better than we thought it was going to in some areas. So it was kind of like a sleeper effect. So excuse me for saying sleeper effect, because we're talking about sleep, but kids that had active input, you started to see that response and the changes right away. But with sleep, it took longer but it was actually pretty robust as well. And so the good thing is that if you provide support to those networks that are forming to to support incoming language during sleep, you're helping the brain do what it needs to do. It may or may not. I mean, I don't know whether we're going to be able to call it an intervention. I can't do that yet because I don't have the data to suggest that it makes them better than they would have been if they hadn't had it at all. But I also know from previous research, much of it is is by other people that show that white noise really impedes that process. Mm. So that's that's the important point here that, yes, maybe um, lots of parents will say, well, you know, I've been using white noise for two years and my child has a fabulous vocabulary and they have no issues with their language. Fine, that's wonderful, but you put your child at risk, I think, doing that. And then other parents will say, I actually had someone email me, my child has a language delay. Is it because I used white noise? And my response to that is, we don't really know that because there's not a study that has shown that in particular. There are lots of factors that come into whether or not your child has a language problem. There are genetics. There's the other things in their environment. There's how much inputs they're getting. There's lots of different things. Maybe listening to white noise, if they were vulnerable, like if there was a family history or they were a preterm, maybe that 
was one of the factors that ended up influencing whether they had a language um, uh, disorder or not. But we don't know that. All we know is that what you want to do, as you said a few minutes ago, is to optimize the sound environment that your babies and your child is exposed to so that they can do what the brain does so well and that it will support that. Yeah. That makes sense to you? Yeah, yeah. So I really think we should, you know, use the research to guide us at least to do some harm reduction, right? If we cannot really be sure this can improve whole a lot, at least we want to minimize the possible negative effects and still help nurturing the baby's growing environment as much as we can. Exactly, exactly. And of course, part of the impetus for doing technology transfer, like setting up this this, uh, Rap Ventures, Inc., and you can look at our website. There's a lot of science on there talking about how the brain develops. We're sitting there doing all of this research and writing our papers and that sort of thing. And how many people get to read those and really figure out how that might impact everyday life. I think as a as a scientist, as a neuroscientist, I want my work and the work of other scientists, neuroscientists and others who are doing beautiful work, I want the public at large to know what that means to them in their lives and to be able to communicate it to not only parents, but to caregivers and pediatricians and sleep consultants and developmental psychologists. Because you can't possibly read all the literature. You just can't do it. I mean, there's a limit to how much you can read. And I would bet that 90% of parents who ask their pediatricians if there's a problem with using white noise would say, it's fine as long as it's not too loud. And that's just not true. And it's not the pediatrician doesn't care about his patients. Of course he does or she does. They think it's, you know, they want to do everything they can to support development, but they just don't have access to that information. And so that's kind of why I'm putting myself out there and taking this time to talk to people like you who can really understand what neuroscience is about and can interpret what that might mean in terms of what you do in your everyday life as you're raising your children. Or maybe insomnia, you know, if you have insomnia, I mean, that's, my husband had insomnia. That's, that's a big issue. I don't know that there's, I think one of the things that we forget about sleep is that it's not only something you really need. I mean, if you if you keep people from sleeping, they die, right? Animals die if you keep them mm-hmm. sleeping. But also, there's all this housekeeping that's going on in the brain while you're asleep. And that's why this deeper sleep is really important. You have something that in, in rats and in mice is called the down state. That's when they're in a particular stage of sleep and everything internally is very connected internally connected and that's when the housekeeping and all this work done is done of getting rid of um, neurons brain cells that are that are failing uh, repairing networks making sure that there's a division between networks that process one thing and another and it also can sometimes happen when you're just resting when you have 
you're having internal thoughts. But once you direct your attention outward, that connectivity um, stops and you just are using the brain areas that you need to do whatever task you're doing, pay attention and that sort of thing. And there have been a couple of studies in adults looking at white noise, showing that that internal connectivity during is, is disrupted in the presence of white noise for adults. And there's also research that shows for children in particular, and sometimes adults with ADHD who have trouble focusing, that white noise in the background while they're awake, while they're awake, and while they're doing a task can help. And how does it help? It decreases the amount of interaction that's happening in other parts of the brain, which in this case is good because the children can filter out some of the other stuff that's going on. So there's a lot we don't know. There's still a lot of research being done in that area. But the one thing that I know is that it's not a good thing for babies. Right, right. Yeah, such great information and uh, help us really break down the research and uh, help the audience really try to understand, right, without reading the research, just from uh, your explanation. I think people can really understand what's going on exactly. Yeah, so thank you so much for taking time sharing all this with us. If our audience wants to find you and learn more about the sound machine and your work, your lab, anywhere they can find you and read more? Well, they can if they just type my name in, I'm the only one and they can find me. But you can you can go to um Wrapped Ventures Incorporated um or Wrapped Baby, capital R-A-P-T, Baby. It stands for Rapid Auditory Processing Technology. Um, and I will also send you um, some links. We will send you the white paper and the cerebral cortex paper. And um, uh, we'll send you a sound machine. Thank you. Yeah, I, I'm, I would be really curious to um, look into this more. And uh, also, I will attach the papers, the links to the paper and all the websites you mentioned in the show notes. So whoever watching or listening, they can, you know, click and get to your website quickly. Excellent. And I can also give you the link to my lab. And there's lots of other research in there. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was lovely. I'm so glad to meet you. And thank you for inviting me. So what's your biggest takeaway from this conversation? Welcome to leave me a message. Let me know. The video version of this conversation will be available on our YouTube channel at Deep Into Sleep Podcast. If you know someone who struggles with insomnia, please check out my insomnia course at mindbodygarden.com insomnia. Thank you for your interest in sleep science. And hopefully, you will have a good night of sleep. I'm Dr. Yishan. Thank you for listening. I will see you next time. Bye. Sleep is an individual thing. We all sleep differently. And there is so much we can do to improve sleep quality. Keep hope and carry on. This podcast is for general informational purpose only and does not include the practice of medicine or other health professional services. Usage of the information we share is at the listener's own risk. And our content does not intend to be a substitute for any medical and professional services, diagnoses, and treatment. 
Please seek professional health services as needed.